Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning, whether you are here at the Cove campus, if you are watching downtown and you've kind of been streaming the service this morning or you're watching online, like I am thrilled to be with you this morning. And real quick, before we kind of dive into uh, today's message, I just want to kind of tell River Tree about an opportunity we have as a church to love someone well. So we have a young lady who's interested in coming on our team and being a worship intern with us for the next couple months. And uh, she's looking for housing in Huntsville. She's from Houston, Texas. Her name is, well, I don't know if I can share her name or not, but she is incredible. I got to meet her last week. Um, And so if you have an extra room or you feel called to do this, um, man, would you email Josh Price, our worship pastor, at joshua at myrivertree.org or Ross Yeager, our lead pastor, Ross at myrivertree.org. I know that that whether you're here at Cove or, or you're watching online or uh, you're downtown, like God's going to stir that in somebody's house. Somebody's got an extra room, right? Somebody's got an extra space and you've been kind of praying and Lord, like, why do I have this space? And you would be a real blessing to this young lady in our church. And in turn, I think she would be a blessing to you. So shoot them an email and, and pray about, talk, uh, obviously, like talk to your family first. Don't just do it right now. Be like, hey, we're good to go. But we would love to hear that today. Um, As you've already heard, some of our staff had COVID exposure. They're all doing awesome. Um, But one of our uh, staff that had COVID exposure was Ross Yeager. So yesterday I was on the text message thread. I kind of got in my Saturday morning routine, right? Watch college game day, drink my coffee, get ready for college football day. And Scott Weeks, our admin pastor, tells everyone he's doing announcements downtown and the welcome hub. But that's what I normally do. So I was like, Scott, why are you doing that? And he said, well, check the first half of the text, which I did not get. But the first half of the text said, Stephen Dunn, you are preaching tomorrow. So um, I got a little uh, short notice that I was preaching today uh, for sure. But I'll just share this with you. I'm thrilled to do it. Like, it's not a burden. It wasn't, I mean, maybe there was a moment it was stressful just because I wanted to do well, right? But like, so today what you're going to hear is you're going to hear some of Ross's thoughts because he had the message done. But once again, he's Ross, right? And I'm Stephen. So like, like he shared that with me and I definitely gleaned from that. And I'll share with you the times that I kind of quote Ross, but then you're going to hear what God put on my heart today. So we're going to continue our series in 1 John. If you have a copy of God's Word, whether it's in your hand or on your phone, uh, definitely check it out. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 7. And, and I would just offer you this before we even dive into the text today. And this is for somebody who's watching downtown, somebody in this room, somebody watching online, that, that you just need to know this, that you are deeply loved. And if I was to give you kind of the sermon in a sentence today, or just a phrase, because I don't think this would be a complete sentence, here it is. You are loved to love. You are loved to love. Let's check it out. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent his Son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Hmm. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he is, he is seeing cannot love God who he's not seen. And this is commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So in case you weren't here last week, let me just kind of catch you up where we've been. Last week, Ross talked about this, this idea, this reality, this truth, right, that God is love. We saw how the father loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And how the atonement of Jesus was a manifestation of love. And I'll just offer you this. Something that you see throughout scripture is that love always sends. Like love is a sending agent. The greatness of God's love for us and for the world is shown in the nature of God's gift for us. In fact, I would just offer you this, that God sent his very best, that God met our deepest need by sending his very best. This is love. And this idea kind of challenged John's audience, and maybe it would be a little challenging to us. Because in John's day and age, the audience that he was writing to, they had categories for people who they deemed worthy of love. They, they would base someone's value or, or how they appeared on the outside or, or even kind of the agendas and the ideas they held to. And they would say, okay, that person is worthy of my love. And, and I, maybe it's something that you and I have in common with John's audience, because I don't know about you, but there are people in my life, if I'm honest, they are easy to love. And there are people in my life who are more difficult to love, Okay. There are people who I look at and they think like I think. They vote like I vote. They like the same football teams as I like. They have the same hobbies as I have. They speak the same lingo I speak. They hold the same values I hold. And man, to offer them love is not very hard work at all. But there are people who think differently than me. Who probably vote differently than me. Who probably have different values than me. And I can put them in a category that they're not even worthy of being loved. Now, I would never say that, right? Like, I wouldn't be like, hey, you're not worthy of being loved. But the way I act, the way I see them, the way I respond to them definitely says that. And I, I, this isn't always intentional, right? Like, we may not with, withhold love from people intentionally. 
But there are people that we encounter that can be difficult. And what John is telling us is this, that God loved the world so much that he sends his son to us, not because we're special or because we are worthy of being loved, but out of choosing connected to God's character and God's heart. One of the verses Ross highlighted in his preparation is a beautiful verse found in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, when talking about the choosing of the people of Israel, it says that the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. I mean, that's good news, right? That God didn't look at you or look at me and say, man, like I'm going to choose to love Stephen Dunn because of his beard. Or I'm going to choose to love Stephen Dunn because he's outgoing. Or I'm going to choose to love Stephen Dunn because of all these faults he has and he probably needs to be loved. No, that God would look at us, not based on who we are, but based on his character and his nature. And he would say, I choose to love them. And that's good news. One of the quotes my friend Will Taylor uh, just shared with me yesterday when I shared with him, I, hey, I've got like seven hours to prepare a sermon. He shared this quote with me. And man, I've been trying to wrap my head around it. It says this, that God loved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you ever sinned. Salvation, it, listen to this, this is my favorite part of the quote. Salvation is not man's quest for God. No, salvation is God's gracious quest for man. Man, I love that idea that our salvation is not, we weren't just trying to figure out, okay, God, where are you, God? How can I find you, God? I need you. No, out of God's grace and out of God's love, he came down and he brought us home and he wooed us to himself. Your love for Jesus doesn't originate with you. It's a response. It's a response to the fact that you were first loved. It's a response that when you look at Bethlehem and you look at Calvary, you realize the only reason that you and I have the capacity to love is because God first loved us. And that love is so birthed in our hearts and so deeply rooted in us as Christians that, man, it gives us the ability to love others. Last week, we realized that we are loved because of God, the sending of his son. And this week, the same passage begins to show us the opportunity and most likely the obligation we have as Christ followers to love in this way. Now, if you're watching online or you're downtown or you're at the Cove campus and you are not a Christian, it is possible for you to love in a sense but if you are a Christian, there seems to be a command, an urging that John has given you and I. Maybe I'd say it this way, an invitation to love the way that God loves. The first thing that John offers us is this, that God's love is ultimately experienced through us. God's love is seen through your love. I mean, that is encouraging, challenging, kind of mind-blowing. Look at verse 12 with me of 1 John 4 again. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete or perfected in us. 
Now that seems a little confusing at first, right? It seems a little out of place. Like why does John start with God's invisibility, right, when he begins to talk about love? But as you read the rest of the passage, it begins to make sense. What John is offering the early church and what John is offering you and I is this reality that though we have not seen God with our eyes, he becomes like manifest to people by our lives. John is saying that others seeing your love is evidence to other people this, that God is real and that God lives in you. When a person sees God's love lived out in our lives towards others, then they begin to see God. There is beauty in that reality. Like the very fact that someone could look at my life, someone could look at your life, and they could actually see a God who loves them. I don't want us to move past that too quickly because like, I think in our head we might kind of know that, right? But I want that to drill deep down in our hearts that the invisible God becomes visible through us. Like this is something we get to go do together. This is incredible. And I know this to be true. And one of the greatest joys of the Christian life is to love people in such a way that they wouldn't see us, but they would see the God who has saved us and rescued us and transformed our lives. I mean, this fires me up when I think about this. This inspires me. This reminds me to stop looking at my life so much and to fix my eyes, as the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 12, on Jesus, who is what? The author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Now he is seated at the right hand of God. And when you look at the cross, when you see God's love on display, there is no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for hate of other people. All there is is love. If anyone can stand at the cross of Jesus and actually look at the Son of God dying for our sins and say, I'm better than someone else, they have missed the point of the cross. They have missed the gravity of the atonement. They have missed on how needy they really are. Paul Miller wrote a wonderful book called Love Walked Among Us. I would recommend it to every one of you. And he makes this observation that has really just like, it probably confirms some stuff I believe, but man, it's good. That love begins with looking. That love begins with looking. Throughout the gospel accounts, 40 times the gospel mentions Jesus looking at people. I mean, this is an amazing reality. As John chapter 1 would say that the word became flesh and what made his residence among us. Um, some translations said made his home among us. And he didn't just walk by the people he lived with. He didn't just blow by them. No, he saw them. Jesus wasn't looking at people and saying, oh, that person's too filthy to consider them. Or he doesn't look at their political allegiance and says, well, they, they differ from me on this point. He's not concerned about how righteous they appear or how sinful people may say they were. No, here's what Jesus is concerned with, right? He's concerned with them. He's concerned with people. And I would just offer you this, that when we don't slow down, we miss people. 
Like when we don't slow down to see people, we miss people and we miss the opportunity to display God in our lives. And I think the result of not slowing down can be pretty damaging to our faith. Now, if you're a longtime River Tree person, you're going to know what I'm about to say. Like, you're going to be familiar with this. But if you're here at Cove or downtown or watching online and you don't know this, I'll, I'll illustrate this point this way. Um, two years ago, I was diagnosed with a cornea disease. A lot of you know that story, right? Four surgeries later, like, I'm seeing better, but still not perfect. I struggle a lot with stairs, especially when stairs begin to look the same color and there's nothing to differentiate them. And the reality is this, that if I don't slow down to look at the stairs, what happens? I fall. I embarrass myself. I make it awkward for other people. My kids think I'm about to die, right? Like, I just fall. It's disastrous because often I'm in a rush. I'm trying to get where I'm going. Even stairs that I know they are there, I seem to fall every time because I don't slow down to see them. But when I slow down, it takes a little longer. It's kind of awkward, right, walking down like a little baby downstairs. But man, I'm safe. And in our faith, I think it's similar. That when we are so hurried and so busy and going from appointment to appointment, whether it's our appointments or our kids' appointments or our dog's appointments or, you know, all those appointments, and we don't slow down to see people, we miss out on what God is doing. What I love about Jesus is he is always on time, but never in a hurry, right? His disciples are pushing people away. They even, man, in the gospel of Mark, they rebuke children. They're like, get away from Jesus. That's, that seems bizarre to us that anyone would rebuke a child from getting to Jesus, but that's what they're doing. Yet Jesus is never in a hurry, but he's always on time. He, and the reality is he moves through the crowd slowly and he sees people. And there's so many stories in the gospel narrative that reminds, of, reminds us of this truth. But probably one of the ones that impacts me the most is found in John chapter 9. And I want you to see this, and we're going to keep this text on the screen. But John chapter 9, verses 1, and se- 1 through 7. And I have to believe this, that when John begins to write 1 John, like he's thinking about this moment in some ways. Let's read the text. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man. Don't miss that. He saw an image bearer. He saw a person blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to them, Go wash in the pool of Salaam, which means sent. Love always sends. So he went and he washed, and he came back what? Seeing. So keep that on the screen. Jesus looks at this man, and who does he see? He sees a man 
But right away, we're told by John that the disciples begin to have this conversation, this who sinned conversation. They automatically judge this man for his blindness. In the first century, it was common thought that if this man was born blind, it was either his parents' sin or his sin that caused this. And here is Jesus, God in flesh, probably the only person in all of the world at the time who can heal this guy. And what do the disciples want to do? What's the conversation they want to have? They want to categorize this guy, and that's what they ask Jesus. They don't say, hey, Jesus, could you heal this guy? Jesus, could you touch this guy? Jesus, could we see a miracle in this moment? Now, the conversation they want is, Jesus, will you help us put this guy in a category? And our culture probably doesn't talk about sin that way anymore, right? Like we don't say who, who sinned when someone's struggling. But we have other words for it. When someone's struggling outside, when someone is struggling inside, when someone isn't doing well, what do we say? We say, well, maybe they had a rough childhood. Or we say, well, maybe work is really stressful. We say, well, maybe they have no friends. We say, well, whose fault is it that they're this way? And we, we categorize them, we diagnose them, right? We're quick to do those things. We analyze them to one another. And it's at those times that we do what the disciples are trying to do here. We put people in a box and we conclude this, that they have issues, right? And I guess they need help. But I think the reason John and the disciples analyze this guy is because it makes him safer, for their world. It keeps their world a place they can explain and everything is in their place. It is shocking. It is shocking the thing they're asking questions about a blind man and the blind man is right in front of them. He can still hear them, right? And like they are having this conversation in front of this guy, showing no compassion, showing no love, showing no reality. They see him as anything more than an item. Then they're the ones who are blind. They may forget just because he lost his ability to see didn't mean he lost his ability to hear. The disciples are trying to categorize him. What does Jesus do? Look at it. He moves towards him. He moves towards this man. He makes mud. He touches his eyes. He's identifying with this guy, as some scholars would say, saying, I understand the pain you're going through. I understand the suffering you're going through, but I see something more amazing and more significant about your life. Jesus lowers himself to care for the man while the disciples continue to judge. The disciples see a blind man, Jesus sees a man who just happens to be blind. There's a major difference. The disciples see an item up for debate. Jesus sees a human being like himself and fellow image bearer. They see sin and the effects of man's work, but what does Jesus see? Jesus sees the need and the potential for God's work. I mean, that's what Jesus says. Jesus says the reason this man is born, born blind is so that the work of God can be done in this moment. Mm. The disciples see a tragedy and wonder who the villain in the story was. But Jesus, he sees a story half told with the best yet 
to come. Friends, it is one thing to notice someone who's blind. It's another thing to see them and to step in their space. It's one thing to see someone who's hurting. It's another thing to step in their space. It's one thing to see someone who's suffering or notice them. And it's another thing to see them because it may cost us time. It may cost us money. It may be uncomfortable. And the reality is this. Uh, inevitably, like it's not unreasonable to be a little fearful in that moment, right? Like it's not unreasonable to understand that when we enter into someone else's pain, if we enter long enough, it touches us too. Every single time. Yet Jesus and his disciple John invite us to do that. What John's doing in this passage is he's inviting you and I to slow down and see. The passage Ross highlighted in his notes. It's a beautiful passage. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, and honor one another above yourselves. When you see someone, see yourself in someone else. Learn to empathize with them. Rather than judging them or putting them in a category, like try to feel like what it would be to live in their shoes. See your insecurities in that person, right? See your hopes in that person. Those things that you think about and those things that you think you need, believe the person next to you, the person that you run into in Huntsville, Alabama, they may need those things just as much as you need. That's what it looks like to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love one another in brotherly affection. Because you have a new life and a perfect father who is so rich and so abounding in love. If it touches you, it can't help but flow from you. Everybody is wounded. Okay? Like, let me say it again in case you don't know. Like, everybody's wounded. Everybody's struggling. And what God has called us to do, what he's invited us to do, is to love. And, like, it's not just, like, something you just conjure up, Right? Like, you can't just be like, okay, I heard the sermon, like, now I love. No, like, affection grows over time. And it's only possible through God's spirit in you. Look at what John continues to unpack in John, 1 John 4, 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. Spirit of God helps. A lot of times we think about God's spirit and we connect it with that word dynamite or dynamos, Right? We think about the power the Spirit of God gives us. In fact, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that, that you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Paul would write in the book of Ephesians that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you. But it's not like a superpower, right? We're not starting some new Netflix show on how we have the power of the Spirit in us and we're doing all these things. No, it's more than that. Like it's God indwelling us. Like God living in us. To love is supernatural. Like to love like this is supernatural. And because God is love and because the spirit of God lives in us, the outworking of that is that you and I would grow up into loving one another more deeply and more profoundly. And we would have this amazing opportunity to do this. Love is not optional. 
Like, love's not something we just get to look at and be like, well, maybe. No. John would say, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. That we have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. To the degree that you know God is, is the degree your life has been set free and the direction of your love. See, John begins to help us with what the outworking of love looks like. Verse 10, he says, this is love. Not that we love God, but he has loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love would be self-sacrificial. Love would cost something, right? Like love always comes with a cost. Let me say it this way. Like love probably isn't going to be convenient at times. But friends, it's hard to love when we're in a hurry. We all have schedules, right? Like I said earlier. We all have things that we do. And sometimes I think we do those things because like if we're doing those things, I mean, it, it, it allows us to feel a little more important. Ross put it this way in his notes, and I really appreciate this section, so I just kept it. Love always slows down. It descends. It takes time. It moves from self-importance to others interested in need meeting in others. He said this, we can often think, uh, and this really got me, okay? We can often think that we are busier, or the busier we are, the more important we are. We believe that the crowded schedule signal to others and to ourselves that we're doing great things, and we must be great people. The best way people will see Jesus is by how you love them and how you love others. And the cool thing is this, guys, that when you love this way, it's evidence that God dwells in you. Like if you struggle with assurance of salvation, John gives us this litmus test. He says this. He says that like a great characteristic of a Christian is not fear, but it's actually love. He says, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. But whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When I no longer fear, here's what I'm free to do. I'm free to love. I'm no longer fearful of falling behind you or getting ahead of you. I'm no longer worried if there will be enough for me. I'm no longer worried if I'm going to be noticed right or if I'm actually important in this life. I'm no longer trying to figure myself out or my purpose or my significance. I'm no longer worried about just being alone. No, I'm not even worried about tomorrow because what I realize is this. When I really start to grasp the love of God, I am so secured by the work of Jesus in my life and his love for me. I am finally set free. I'm free from worry, free from fear, free from judgment, free from self-absorption. And I get to look forward to love others. Friends, the world is loved. And the greatest tragedy is the world doesn't know it. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, these words, Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To tell people and show people they are loved, that should be our heartbeat. Our confession that Jesus loves you and to serve and be committed to other people, that's huge. So last week, um, 
had the privilege of going to Richmond, Virginia, be with some other pastors uh, to learn about what God's doing in Richmond and what I learned, the DMV, that's like, if you don't know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, they said we were going to the DMV. I thought we were literally going to a DMV just to look at people in Richmond, but found out different the next day in a two-hour car ride. But like, I saw the gospel flourishing. And uh, when I came home, uh, I flew through Atlanta and uh, flew on Delta, and I had about a three-hour layover, so that seemed like an adventure to me. Ate at my favorite hamburger place, Shake Shack. Loved that place. Went there twice. Uh, they remembered me the second time. It was really cool. Uh, They're like, yeah, we remember you. I was like, I don't know if that's good or bad, but hey, I'm back. And, uh, and I walked the Atlanta airport. Like, if you've never done that, not just take the plane train, but like, I walked it. And they got those, like, not escalators, but those, like, escalator walkways, right? They don't have steps, but like, they make you feel like you're walking really fast. Listen to music. I just felt like it was an incredible experience. But that only took an hour. So I had about two hours left, and I kind of kept walking past this thing in the terminal. Some of you are going to know right away what I'm talking about. That really intrigued me. It was the Delta Sky Club, right? So I see the Delta Sky Club, and, and I, I don't really know what it is, but I keep seeing people go in it. And I'm like, I don't, like, I'm flying Delta today. I'm a Sky Miles guy. Like, maybe I should go in there. So I, like, I'm struggling, but I'm like, what, what the heck? Like, I'm going to go in. So I walk through. Um, the sliding door, and I feel like if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia, that like I'm walking through the wardrobe going to Narnia, okay? But my Narnia wasn't a frozen wonderland. It was a place with Rice Krispie treats and coffee and food and a bar and comfortable seats and all these really cool people. And I'm like, wow, like who knew this was underground in Atlanta airport? So I'm standing there and I'm watching people scan their ticket. I'm like, huh, I guess I'll do that. So I scan my ticket. And the lady behind the counter, super nice lady, was like, you're not in this club. <laughs> and I was like, man, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I'm sure. I was like, well, can I look around? And she says, no. I was like, oh, man, this kind of stinks. So I was like, maybe just a little. And she's like, OK, like, you can stand. Like, she's there. I'm here. She's like, but I'm going to keep my eyes on you. So I'm looking around. I'm like, I really want to be in this club. So I'm like, how do I get in this club? She's like, give me $575. And I thought, can't do that, sorry. <laughs> so I start to walk out, and there's just something happening inside of me. So I look at her, and I was just like, hey, I, I, I just need to say this. Like, I love you. And like, let's <laughs> see, like my, one of my best friends was in the first service, and he just started laughing because he could imagine me doing this. But I was like, hey, I love you, and you matter. And um, I didn't get my way, right? I didn't get in the club. Like, most of the time, I could kind of talk my way into that stuff. But not this time. $575 wasn't just quite enough. But I told her that. And I was walking out content never to go in the Delta Sky Club in my whole life. And as I get to the stairs to go back through the wardrobe, <laughs> she says, sir, stop. I was like, yeah. And she said, come here. I said, yeah. She goes, you have the spirit of God in you, don't you? I was like, I think so. Like, yeah, I do. Like, I do. Yeah. I was like, yeah. She's like, I could tell. Like, this is what John's talking about, right? So I go, I get my Rice Krispie treat. I make awesome, like, latte for myself. I was like, this is, I need this machine at home. I get some water. I sit in the seat across from a guy. I say, hey, can I sit here? He said, sure. And then he moved, okay? <laughs> but I'm sitting there for about 30 minutes just enjoying it. I was like, man, this is really neat. 
And I'm walking out, and Bridget stops me. That's her name. And she said, hey, I just need to talk to you. I was like, yeah. I was like, thank you so much for like, letting me experience this. She goes, well, here's what's been happening. When COVID hit, I got furloughed. I was by myself. I was alone. I was hurting. I wanted to give up. Didn't want to come back to work, but God wouldn't let me. So I came. And so you guys know, Bridget is way different than me in a lot of ways. She said, I came. And she said, God continues to send people to this Sky Club to remind me that he sees me and that he loves me and he hasn't forgotten about me. Now, that story isn't about me. So don't, please don't leave and hear that Stephen Dunn's the hero of the story, okay? Now, that story is about the God that really loves me and I really love him. And some of that spilled out. And I was 14. Oh, it doesn't always. I wish I could say every time I meet somebody, that's my intention. I mean, those are the opportunities. For once, in a really weird way, I slowed down enough to see Bridget for the image bearer she was. I watched people walk by who had paid the money just blow past her, too concerned about what was happening next. And I just talked to her. I got to know her name. I heard her story. She asked me to pray for her. See, that's what we're invited into. I believe that there are people in your life right now, and maybe they live in your home. They're screaming, do you see me? Hmm. That wasn't in the first sermon. And we haven't slowed down enough to see them and love them and sit with them we're too busy, too important, too hurried, and forgetting how deeply loved we are. Man, I love, uh, I love what Spurgeon says about this passage. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England long ago, and he says these words. What is it we've been talking about? He said, it is God's love to us. Get this thought in your head for a minute. God loves me. Not merely, I love this part, not merely bears with me, right? Not merely thinks of me, feeds me, but he loves me. Oh, it is a very sweet thing to feel that we are loved by a wife or by a husband. But there's much more sweetness in the love of a fond child or a tender mother. mother. But to think that God loves me, that is infinitely better Who is it that loves you? God, maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, all in all, he loves me, even he. If all men and all angels and all living creatures before the throne loved me, it was nothing. The infinite loves me. And who is it that he loves me? We love him because he first loved us. But this is a personal point. He loves me, an insignificant nobody, full of sin, who deserved to be in hell, who loves him so little in return. God loves me. Maybe somebody not as profound as Spurgeon, maybe more profound, Sally Lloyd-Jones in the children's storybook Bible that we read to our kids growing up says it this way. God's love is a never stopping, never failing, never giving up, always, forever kind of love. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, you don't make mistakes. I thank you for the chance to share your word with people today and to share your love with people. And Lord, if there's a person in this room today who for the first time realizes how loved they are by you, God, would you save them? God, would you rescue them? And for those of us who were just reminded this morning, God, like there was a moment in our life we believed you loved us, but lately we haven't felt very lovable. God, that we would just return to you and realize that you are the father who's been looking on the porch for us to come home and you don't reject us, but you embrace us and you put your arms around us and say, welcome home. So this morning I invite you to reflect on how much God loves you. Would you just think about your salvation for a moment when you first came to Christ and ask God to restore the joy of your salvation to your life? As you see how much God loves you, there's only one response to love others. So two questions to reflect on. Who might God be asking you to move towards? So ask him that. And maybe that person lives with you. And how might God be inviting you to slow down and see today? Jesus, you're really good to us to let us be here. It's going to be a full day of ministry, Lord. We got children tonight, five to six. We got youth from six to seven in here. We've got a city that needs to know how deeply it's loved. So Lord, help us just receive your love today. God, transform our lives. God, thank you for your message. You're really the hero today. This can't be done without Jesus. Thanks for loving me. Help us finish it, rest in the finished work of Christ today. And Lord, we worship you and you alone today. In Jesus' name, amen.